Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to November's collaboration episode. As always, my name is Zach Twomley, and as always, you are listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Now, you might be wondering, looking at the title of this collaboration episode, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't recognise Norman Oler's name, he's not a podcaster. What even is Blitzed? Well, history friend, I can tell you right now you're in for a treat, because Norman Oler, if you weren't aware, if you haven't been keeping up with the developing literature on drugs in Germany and drugs in Hitler's inner circle, etc., Norman Oler is the author of a book called Blitzed, and Blitzed looked at the subject of drugs in Germany before the Second World War and also during it, and also the drugs that Adolf Hitler and his inner circle were known to be taking. It's a very, very interesting book. It sheds incredible new light on a whole range of different topics. And Norman Oler was kind enough and generous enough with his time to talk to me, this best-selling author with his own Wikipedia page and a very high public profile at the moment. Norman Oler was generous enough to take some time to talk to me about his book. He takes us through the subjects that Blitzed addresses, and he becomes our guide, really, for the state of drug use in... Germany during the Weimar Republic and during the outbreak of the Second World War. He brings us through what Hitler was doing, why he was taking these drugs, the extent to which Morel had access to Hitler, and really the kind of underrated fact that in, at least from 1941 onwards, Hitler saw Theodor Morel more than any other person, which even in itself really does suggest that we should really pay more attention to Theodor Morel. And thankfully, that is exactly what Norman Oler does, and much of his book is actually based upon the notes that Theodor Morel provides. So, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't really know what all this is, I'm not really that interested in drugs in the Third Reich. And hey, that's fine, but I would recommend that you listen up, because if you have an open mind, and you're not of the kind of school of thought that says... This is the way the Second World War was, this is the way Nazi Germany was, and this is what Hitler is. Then I would say, listen here, read Norman Oler's very accessible, very readable, and really very fascinating book. And yeah, open your mind to what's out there, because really, this is not some conspiracy quack book, no matter what one historian in particular says about it, and we do get into that. 
it's a critically acclaimed book. It's been very widely praised across the historical spectrum and in the different media outlets across the world. It's been translated into several languages, and it's an internationally best-selling book. I mean, what else do you want me to tell you? It's a very, very good book. I've read it twice myself, and I really can't praise the book enough for the new perspective it's given us on Nazi Germany, the Nazis, their ideology, their hypocrisies, and of course, Adolf Hitler himself. Anything that brings us closer to understanding the person of Adolf Hitler is, in my view, a good thing. Some people don't like it. Some people don't like the fact that Norman Elder is a journalist by trade and he came in and did this historical book. But in fairness to Norman Elder, he spent a very long time in the archives looking at things in those archives that people have really not touched at all. And as he'll tell you himself, there's still boxes of documents in these archives that have yet to be touched. And maybe such stunning revelations, such as the ones outlined in Blitz, are just waiting to be discovered by someone else who might just wander into these archives. Someday, perhaps, that might be me. But until then, I would encourage you guys to listen up to this collaboration episode and maybe check out, in the links in the description of this episode, Norman Oler's book and Norman Oler's website. And hey, maybe even throw him a thanks and say you enjoyed listening to him on this podcast. Because, again, a huge thanks to Norman Oler for joining us because it really really helped me out and I really appreciate it he's a very busy man he's going all across the world to talk about his book and get the word of this new stuff out there and it's really really exciting to see like new ideas and new discoveries on a period of history that people think is oversaturated by all these I mean like how many different books are on the second world war and yet here's a fresh take on a very old subject and it really does give people like me hope that even in the long distant future I'll be able to do the same thing. So thanks to Norman Oler for furthering the cause of history but especially for coming on to When Diplomacy Fails and maybe sending a bit of publicity about his book that way. If you're only here because you've never heard of When Diplomacy Fails before and you've only heard of Norman Oler then thanks for stopping by. I hope you'll listen to this collaboration episode which is an interview between myself and Norman Oler and maybe check out some of our older stuff in the back catalogue. But until then, any other information is in the description of this episode. I'm just going to let it all go ahead and let the conversation between the two of us speak for itself. Without any further ado then, let's get into this. The next voices you hear will be mine and Norman Olders. Thanks and enjoy. Norman Oler, thank you very much for joining us on When Diplomacy Fails podcast. And just in case people don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Well, I'm from a small town in West Germany, but I live in Berlin now. I'm a novelist and I also wrote one nonfiction book, and that is the book I suppose we might be talking about today. It's called Blitzed Drugs in Nazi Germany. Uh, well, you, you just mentioned other books briefly there. I mean, I'm always interested to find out how people started their careers in journalism or in researching history or anything like that. So maybe just tell us a little bit about the books that happened before Blitz. Well, I attended the Hamburg School of Journalism when I was quite young and um, was trained in writing journalistic texts. But the thing I really wanted to write was books, uh, was fictional books. And I, in a way, fled Germany in the mid-90s and went to New York and wrote my first novel there which was a detective story set in New York City and um, then returned to 
Berlin to write my second book there. It's called Mitte Center. It's a ghost story set uh, in Berlin. And then I lived for quite some time in Johannesburg, South Africa, and wrote my third novel there. It's called uh, the English translation is called Ponty City. And it's the, the story of a, of a young girl from Soweto who moves into Johannesburg after apartheid falls in order to find her luck, I suppose. Hmm, cool. Okay. And how, how, when, when it comes to writing about history, how did you get drawn into doing that from doing fiction? Well, my fourth novel, which just came out in Germany a few weeks ago, was actually the first project that's uh, a history project. It's set in the 18th century, and it's about Frederick the Great's, uh, Great's attempt to drain all the swamps of Prussia and turn them into farmland and thus develop Prussia into a modern economy. And uh, when I started writing that book, uh, for the first time I did historical or historic research, which then later on helped me to do um, Blitz, which, which is heavily based on, on research and archives in Germany and the United States. I, I'd, be, I'd love to know if you could explain, say, because Blitz does cover, like, you could, on the one hand, you could say that Blitz is very kind of specific. It fulfills a specific niche in the historical market. But on the other hand, there is a lot going on in the book. So say you could summarize it into maybe a few sentences for people that don't know what Blitz is all about. What, what kind of way would you put it? On the one hand, it gives a comprehensive picture on how drugs were abused or used uh, in Nazi Germany on a mass scale in civilian society in the army on the german army used it to its advantage to invade poland france uh, holland kind of designed the, the blitzkrieg with the help of uh, methamphetamine um also talks about uh, extensively about the drug career of the führer of germany of hitler himself who um, is shown to be to the outside world to be a teetotaler but in fact he's uh, using quite a, a lot of different medications and towards third, 43 and 44 mm. turns to using opiates and uh, so that 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 that's a, that's that stuff is very interesting the facts are very interesting i feel like the story gives more than just a window into drug use and mm. the hit and hitler's drug use i feel like it gives a good account of the German psyche and how full mm. of contradictions all the people in the top echelons of the Third Reich were. And I find it interesting as well how much drug use fit in with the idea in the Third Reich that we have to keep moving, everyone's going to stay awake, we're going to work mm. really hard. Mm. Maybe maybe just take us through a little bit like the state of drug use in the Weimar Republic and even just in pre-war Germany, maybe how readily available kind of nowadays crazy mm. bad drugs would have been while researching the book i try to find out where do all these famous drugs that we know today such as heroin cocaine hitler's or methamphetamine come from and um, they basically were all german products at, at one point in time merck the merck company had the patent on cocaine the bayer company developed heroin now at the same time they developed aspirin um, Germany in the late 19th century, without having um, the same amount of colonies that, for example, Great Britain had or France had, but still being a, a large modern society with the need for stimulants, medications and drugs, uh, had to develop those stimulants on their own. And so the pharmaceutical industry in Germany 
plays an important role in developing um, these powerful substances and, and well, plays an important role in the developing German economy as a whole. So drug research, drug development became kind of a pillar of German society and a German economy. And that that's a, that's the first chapter of the book. So I'm trying to, sure. to see where it all comes from. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book, the, the tablet Pervitin, and I found it really quite, well, striking and fascinating and also worrying just how, I suppose, would it be wrong to say that soldiers were dependent on it or that kind of it certainly did contribute to their success in, in a big way, you could say? Well, Pervitin, which contained methamphetamine, it's the first uh, medication in the world that, that's basically made up of pure methamphetamine and was perfectly legal in Germany in 38 when it came onto the market. Um, became very popular among the civilian society. It was even mixed into chocolates for uh, housewives yeah. or for any anybody who want, wants, wanted to eat meth chocolate. Uh, was uh, You could just buy them in the shop. <laughs> and then the German army examined whether methamphetamine could be useful for the war effort because German universities had found out that methamphetamine keeps you from sleeping and uh, reduces your fear and reduces your anxiety. So they made tests among medical officers and found that it might be a good drug for soldiers. And then before Germany attacked France, a stimulant decree was issued by the German army telling each medical officer how much pervitin to issue once the attack would start. And 35 million dosages of pervitin were being ordered by the Wehrmacht and shipped to the front lines and contributed, uh, if you believe my research, in quite a big way to um, the surprise victories of yeah. Germany in that in that campaign. Mm. And I think it's very much an underrated aspect of it because it's almost accepted that through Blitzkrieg the, the Germans just advanced and overran everything. But when you look at the nitty-gritty details, I mean, if a lot of them were taking this drug that basically enabled them to stay awake for extended periods of time, that really does give you, it gives you an artificial advantage, but the army, the army's almost, yeah. quite literally, the army's almost on steroids, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it also deconstructs the myth of the unbeatable German Wehrmacht and the super, super soldier that was, the Nazi system was breeding, I mean, basically this the super soldier needed his extra portion of methamphetamine to you know, turn into the to a soldier that was actually a little bit different than the allied soldiers who were drinking red wine and uh, in order to boost themselves which you cannot really compare to methamphetamine the, the french french soldiers were given 3 quarters of a liter of red wine each day uh, that was the official drug consumption for the for the French army and uh, right. later on oh. they made a report saying that this was counter-effective. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, basically a bottle of red wine a day wouldn't exactly make you the most the most mobile or willing to go out there kind of thing. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, I mean, I want to just talk a little bit because by and large Blitz has received a lot of favorable reviews and I think rightfully so. I've read it twice and I felt every each time I read it, I read it when it first came out and then I read it there recently to prepare for this. But 
One, I want to talk about one critique in particular, purely because if people see that criticism, they might not realize that. I'm talking about there's this review in The Guardian by a particular historian, Richard J. Evans. He goes through the fact, he claims that you underrate the actual responsibility of the Nazis and Hitler for their actions. Mm. And he also claims that because of this, you hint that uh, the Nazis were somehow not to blame because they were under the influence. And he says that your book is morally and politically dangerous. Now, in my Mm. view, this is just him not properly reading the book or or taking it the wrong way. But how would you respond to this criticism? Well, I I really think that he didn't read the book properly. I think he kind of glanced through it and he didn't like the whole approach. I'm certainly... I, I think the book, I mean, if we would put it in a political feel. I think it, it's it's rather a leftist book, actually. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a right-wing book that is trying to excuse the Nazis' the Nazis' crimes. And, 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 and I state this in the book. I write about, uh, about this question. I, I don't think at all that it diminishes the responsibility. I, I think he was... I don't know what's wrong with this guy. I mean, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm invited to a conference in November where he's also invited, and I don't even know how how I can communicate with him because he tried to. It's 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 in a way he, he tried to launch a campaign against the book, and I just don't understand why. Yeah, he would do that. It would be interesting to maybe it wouldn't be interesting. I don't to ask him why he did that. I mean, he's received a lot of publicity for trying to attack Blitz because Blitz has received a lot of publicity, so he's like against. He's like the, the the one man standing against it. Maybe it makes him happy, or I don't know. I, I I thought it was a bit strange, actually, because he also made a lot of mistake, factual mistakes in his review, saying that I would claim that Hitler was using methamphetamine, which Hitler that's like the only drug Hitler didn't take. So he didn't read it very carefully, and I don't think he really mm. thought about the book for long enough to actually make those statements that he made. I'm a little bit disappointed that the Guardian would print such garbage. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, newspapers these days, but uh, by and large, I mean, the likes of Ian Kershaw, who wrote a big, big, thick biography of Hitler, it's on my mm. shelf, and Anthony Beaver as well, who's written a whole load of books on the Second World War. Mm. Both both of these historians allude to how important your research has been for giving us a different window in how the Third Reich mm. worked and, and that kind of thing. How How kind of I suppose gratifying like do, does it make you feel proud to have these bona fide historians kind of saying that you've done a good job well of course i mean uh i was uh, i was on the bbc radio live radio program with uh, anthony beaver and i had no idea and my publisher had no idea how he would receive the book and uh, he, he he enjoys it so i was quite relieved you know yeah but i mean the more not more important but very important from the start was the support by Ian Kershaw, who was uh, who wrote a f- fantastic uh, book on Hitler and, and knows everything about Hitler. And mm. in Blitz, in a way, I criticize him, not strongly, but I kind of say, why didn't he write more about Morel? Why didn't he see there's a story here? So he reacted not like a small school child kind of yeah. being insulted or anything, but he, he kind of reacted with an open mind and... Mm. I think this book can only be appreciated by historians who have who are open-minded and yeah I didn't even think before I wrote it that there might be historians with closed minds I thought they would mm. all be you know very open-minded and think 
yeah, this is interesting and we haven't thought about this. And I mean, you can obviously have critique, can criticize every book and you could probably find things in Bliss as you could criticize. And that's totally, that's totally fine. I just think Evans, he didn't write a good criticism. It's yeah. Totally- it was a was a bit of a, a fast criticism that didn't really go into, you know, didn't really try to understand the mm. book. So it was a bit unfortunate. Yeah, but, and it's it's unfortunate as well because I'd hate the idea for someone to read that and think, oh, I'm not going to bother with this book kind of mm, thing. Probably that happened quite a, quite often. Mm, that's that's the I think that's why it's good that the likes of Ian Kershaw and Anthony Beaver have open mm. minds. I think it is a mark of professionalism that you can say, okay, I, I, I overlooked that, but this guy has looked into it and I mm. can see, like, just because I haven't thought of it doesn't mean it's not right, you know? Mm. Well, that's the historians. It's, it's a controversial book, so, I mean, it's a it's an unusual book, so we, we shouldn't be too surprised that some historians just, it just rubs them the wrong way. Sure, yeah, that, that's so, fair. I mean, everyone knows that the Second World War is like, you could call it occupied historical territory. I mean, we've already run mm. through a few names of historians that have done a lot of work in that field. Were you kind of, were you more careful maybe? Were you, I mean, every historical book that has to be done has to take a lot of careful research. Mm. But did you have to, did you feel like you had to make sure your your, your theories or your ideas were sound like extra watertight, if you like, mm. just because you were aware that you'd be in this field with lots of people that have mm. already done stuff? Well, I mean, for me, it was very important to spend a lot of time in the archives and um, look at original documents. And I had always thought that this is a very natural habitat for the historian to do so. But Mm. I learned since that actually quite a few historians don't go to the archives or don't go anymore because they have a reputation now and they can just write the book staying at home and and kind of reading other books and kind of putting their stuff together. So I I think I, I did quite thorough research because i thought it was you know it's natural to spend like weeks and months in in uh, windowless uh, archive rooms <laughs> and it's actually quite fun i mean it's you know it's time consuming and you have to travel and you have to get to the place and you have to find things and it's not easy but it's very interesting to actually have the documents the original documents in your hands yeah um but of course uh, it was difficult for me to write this book being a non-historian so i thought to ask um, a German historian named Hans Mommsen. Um, he passed away last year, but when, when I was writing the book, he was um, working with me on the book. He's a leading German historian on National Socialism, and I contacted him through my publisher, asking him whether he would be interested in that subject. And uh, I mean, he's worked on this National Socialism his whole life, and when I came with all my photocopies from the archives into his study in south of Bavaria, south of Munich. He was very interested and, and was amazed by my findings. And then yeah. he actually discussed the structure of the book with me. And um, like it was his suggestion to also look at the German pharmaceutical industry and how, how it all came about. So I had a lot of help from this one particular historian, Hans Mommsen, um, mm. who kind of helped me shape a book that could survive in the sharp pool of uh, historical nonfiction books yeah and you were saying there about he was he was amazed to see the sources i mean it you you even mentioned in your book that there's a lot of sources that have yet not even to be sorted through but also even to be seen i mean there's boxes of stuff that mm. are really badly categorized and if not mm. for archivists really it's a real toil to get through them 
Yeah, I mean, when the archives were indexed, for example, the, the, all this World War II stuff, when it was indexed um, in the 50s and 60s, no one thought about drug use. So <laughs> if you go through the index, you, you can't, you know, you can't type into the computer drugs and it gives you all the documents mm. having references to drug use. You have to, it's more complicated than that. So I, there might be, you know, more stuff out there. And I'm getting asked a lot when I have readings about the drug use of concentration camp guards and these Einsatzgruppen who did these mass shootings in oh, Eastern course, Europe. Yeah. And I have not, I have not found uh, anything on, on them, but uh, probably somewhere there's references, you know, maybe guys are writing home saying only, you know, send me more heavy. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's stuff to be found, but I mean, so I hope that future historians will, will look at this question of how drugs shaped World War Two or other wars. Um, there was a review of my book in some British historian society where they basically said, hopefully now, this the, the good thing about the book is that it opens. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our eyes, the historian's eyes, to the question of drugs and how they might shape uh, uh, decision making, and uh, so maybe there's more research that other people will do now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if if you've gone there before, hopefully other people will be encouraged to go there again. Yeah, yeah. I want I want to talk as well. At one point, you mentioned being in the archive, and I just this this kind of quote it really stuck with me. You were talking to one of the archivists in, in Washington archives. And uh, he, he said that history always remains one thing, speculation drawing on the most relevant possible facts. And to mm. me, that, that really captures so much of what history is. You take the facts that you can find that are at your hands. But, I mean, we don't know what went on in people's minds. We don't know exactly what they were thinking at specific times. So were you able to take, were you able to take some comfort from, from mm. this kind of idea, knowing how much, like you said, how much stuff has yet to be seen? Well, I do believe that 
the word story is in history for a reason, and uh, that I, and I don't consider the historical science as an accurate science. It is a science that borders in German it's the Geisteswissenschaften, the sciences of the mind, which are not that precise and which which leave room for interpretation. Sure. Uh, I guess the historian has to look at the sources and then, you know, with his conscience, try to try to write a narrative that is as close that is close to the truth. And mm. but it's still a narrative. It's I consider it a fiction. I consider each historical nonfiction book also not. I mean, not a fiction book, but it, they they all have fictional aspects. And uh, probably some historical nonfiction writers would say it's not true, but if 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 it would be true, then these books would be, I guess, too boring or too dry to read. I mean, every histor- every historical writer is also using his imagination in order to understand or connect the dots to to write yeah. something that makes sense to to the readers. But one has to be very careful, of course, not to invent things that just yeah. obviously weren't are not true or. So it's a, it's that I guess that's the art of of historical nonfiction writing to write in a in a vivid way without inventing unnecessary things. I try to really, I mean, in Blitz, there's really nothing in, in, invented, but still, you know, I write about soldiers taking um, large amounts of methamphetamine before going into battle on the Western Front, and this is a fact. And another fact is that methamphetamine releases all the dopamine in the brain and that the brain reacts in a certain way. So I'm, I'm trying to understand and describe how soldiers on methamphetamine, German soldiers invading France, how they feel and what's going on, the state of alertness that's going on in their brain. But obviously there's some fiction to it, you know, because I'm, I, it, it was my brain <laughs> uh, that was reacting back then. It's not a first-person account, and sure. uh, so that's it's that's that, I think that's kind of the art of writing this historical nonfiction yeah. genre. Oh, definitely it's, is. It's certainly it's certainly a big challenge, and um, I was you know trying to be as conscious about it as I as I could. Obviously, I'm coming from I'm a novelist, so I tend I tend to invent things. So I had to kind of hold my horses back and, and hmm. stick to the documents that I that I found in the archives. Yeah, and I mean, it is a fine line, but all, all history is like, but th- this isn't to say now by any means that speculation forms any, any large part of your book. I mean, one reviewer in particular called it a very like convincing book, and I mean reading through all the all the the personal accounts as well are what really got me. Like we never really hear about mm. people about the soldiers writing home asking for more provision. Like we don't mm. hear about that at all. We like you hear about like the usual propaganda stuff that, mm. that the soldiers wrote home. But I mean, it's hard to argue when you're presented with all of these accounts of different people saying different things about drugs and mm. varying degrees of dependence. It really does strike you as something that. That, that really is quite... You build a strong picture, I think, around the idea that drugs were far more prevalent than we've really thought about before. Mm, for sure. I'm going to just move it on from... Move this discussion on from the Third Reich and Germany more to the person of Adolf Hitler himself. Mm. And you spend about, I'd say, about half the book looking at Adolf Hitler himself. So it gives a really good... Mm a really good account of him from like the early days to the kind of 
the twilight era of the Third uh-huh. Reich, if you like. And you say at one point that any biography of Adolf Hitler, it has to take a detour through uh, Theodore Morel, who was mm. his personal, like, personal doctor, physician. And why, why do you think that is? First injection from this master of injections, which Morel was, that was a specialty as a doctor, from that moment on until 1945, late April 1945, Hitler spent more time with Morel than with any other human being. So not to examine the relationship, very intimate, personal relationship between those two men, very strange relationship because yeah. between, between them were the most potent drugs that mankind has ever uh, manufactured and they were pumped into Hitler's veins by Morel. So that, I mean, the, the exchange between the two men was, was quite, you know, unusual. And, mm. um, and, and the big, Hitler biographies, we mentioned the one by Kershaw, or the other one, important one, is by Joachim Fest, German historian. They do mention Morel, because if you examine Hitler, you cannot miss Morel. He's always there. Uh, uh, but they have not really examined what is going on between them. I mean, what medications, what drugs are actually being given, um, because they probably did not imagine that they could have an effect on, on Hitler's decision-making. So this is what I was trying to uh, examine and list. Yeah. And do you think it would be fair to say that Morel has been largely forgotten or even overlooked as a kind of person around Hitler? Yeah, for sure. Um, Morel was an oddball in the headquarters. He was not one of these leading evil Nazi figures who committed horrific crimes there's no statement of morale there's no anti-semitic statement for example that exists of morale he, at least i didn't find one right. he, did, he didn't seem to be concerned with politics at all uh, he just completely played his role as the one person responsible for keeping the german head of state in good health that was that was his job that was what he thought he was doing uh, in fact, he was doing something quite different because he, he in a way, he ruined Hitler's health and um, yeah. he behaved very irresponsibly as a doctor. But that, 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 that's so. He, in a way, he has a very small role. But at the same time, that role becomes very big because he, he, he does have a very powerful grip on Hitler's personality. Yeah. So Morales, yeah, historians have overlooked him. They have looked at you know all the other. There's, there's quite a few important figures around Hitler, and each, you know, deserves a 2,000-page biography, I suppose. And um, yeah. so Morales, uh, no one had had time yet for Morel. I was the first one to, to spend some time with Morel, I, I guess. Mm. You mentioned you mentioned uh, the, the weird relationship between Hitler and Morel. Maybe just run through some of the things that Morel was actually giving to Hitler. Well, Morel was known as a Dr. Feelgood in Berlin in the early 30s. He had a, a, a very successful practice. He was f- famous for giving people injections uh, of uh, 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 vitamins, but also st- stuff stronger than vitamins, um, hormone uh, cocktails. And also he was um, very fond of giving uh, oikodal, which is a strong euphoric making op- opioid, a half synthetic opiate. What he, what he gave Hitler was an, an amazing, always changing cocktail of over 90 different uh, medicines. And from 36 to 41, it actually is mostly vitamins, 
and glucose and things that don't make you dependent. But in 41, he starts giving opiates for the first time to Hitler. Mm. And um, also he starts giving hormone injections, steroids, especially bulls, testicle uh, extracts, li pigs, liver extracts, thyroid glands extracts, weird, weird stuff. That yeah. It's <laughs> not really given anymore, but at the time it was kind of fashionable to give very potent hormone uh, substances from animals in order to boost the immune system. He did that quite a lot from 41 to 43, and then 43 is really when Oikodal, the opioid, they have synthetic opiate uh, that makes you euphoric and is actually stronger than heroin, starts to come into the picture, and 44, he gives Hitler quite a lot of it. Every other day, Hitler receives 20 milligrams of Oikodal in the fall of 1944 and becomes physically... Uh, dependent on the stuff. So mm -hmm. the medication of morale gets more and more uh, intense and hard and um, uh, more and more hard drugs uh, come into this cocktail. Yeah, and a, a really interesting kind of uh, parallel you mentioned, the way the worse things get for, for the military situation in Germany and the more Hitler seems to kind of isolate himself in these different bunkers and military encampments and all that kind of thing, mm. he starts to, Hitler starts to kind of, maybe consciously or unconsciously, it's like he replaces the the high of the adulation from the crowds that he used to get with this new chemical artificial high of the all these drugs that are being pumped into. Mm. Yeah, we can see that very clearly when we study Morel's notes. And when we study um, Hitler's appearances in, in public, there's a point when uh, when the war starts, and especially when the war against the Soviet Union starts, when he does not show himself in public anymore, so these big speeches um, basically stop. I mean, he has some big speeches in front of military um, military gatherings, but he he does not get this standing ovations uh, like he did before, which were kind of feeding into his charisma and into his personality. And but sure. he he's now using especially Oikodal to boost uh, his self-confidence, uh, kind of mm. artificially replacing the natural stimulus that he was getting from, from, the, from, the, from the crowds. Yeah, I, you mentioned as well, like at certain points he seems like disheveled and, and like people are shocked by his appearance and, and nine times out of ten a, a, an injection of this stuff brings him back to life almost. But then there's the odd time as well where the likes of Goebbels or... or someone else around him would even write down themselves for like in their own diary that Hitler doesn't seem to to look well or, mm. or they're worried even about Morel's kind of what what Morel might be doing to him I think that kind of stuff is fascinating and the impact that all of this must have had on Hitler's psyche how it must have eroded his health by the end of it yeah I mean Hitler looked younger than he was for quite some time. There's one description that he looked younger than he was till 39 and from 39 to 41 he looked his age and then 41 he really started aging and we can see that in that uh, period uh, Morel's hormone and uh, hormone injections, the, the steroids are being, by, are being administered quite often so I guess these quick fixes in, it didn't really pay off in the long run. I mean, mm. Hitler's health really degenerated without him being sick. He didn't have an illness. I mean, there's rumors to, that towards the end he had Parkinson's, but 
that's not it's actually not there's no proof for it it's just a, a way to explain um, his deteriorating health and the tremor that was developing if we look at what morale was 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 giving him the the amounts of uh, opiates that he received in 43 especially 44 um, that might be another explanation for his deteriorating health and the tremor that he developed especially in the first weeks and months of 1945 when suddenly Morel doesn't have these drugs available anymore apparently because the British had bombed all the pharmaceutical companies by then and supplies were running out in Germany yeah uh, you mentioned as well that the way that Morel kind of, because there was a few, well, there was one notable kind of uh, struggle for power against Morel. Mm. After after that had failed and Morel held on to his position, he was kind of uh, explaining himself to Hitler how because of his treatment, because of the, the injections, Hitler was able to, to mm. kind of get back to work kind of straight away because there just wasn't time to do the kind of normal procedures. And Hitler, mm. even, Hitler even said that, yes, his Morel's methods might be kind of like unusual and they might not necessarily mm. have been proven, but they're necessary for, for the situation that, that we're in now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of suspicion against Morel in the inner circles. Himmler was very suspicious. Bormann hated Morel because Morel was closer to Hitler than himself. The two men never disclosed what was given. It was a, it was an unusual situation for sure within the headquarters that um, there was stuff going on that no one knew about. When Morel writes in his notes, when he records that conversation with Hitler that he had to always go to the extreme and give very high dosages in order to restore Hitler to proper health, keep him functioning even in uh, difficult times. I mean, that, that really is telling of, what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to talk as well about, like, it wasn't just Hitler. After a while, people started to think, when they were around Hitler, they started to think, oh, Hitler seems to be doing well. He seems to be getting, like, regularly pepped up. Maybe I'll try this stuff too. And then mm. you, mentioned, you mentioned some of the stuff, like, I think the one that really sticks out to me, Lenny Riefenstahl, the, mm. the, the famous uh, filmmaker and everything else, she was taking morphine enemas. <laughs> Yeah, well, it became Morel became very fashionable because he had the most powerful patient uh, in the in the Reich. So um, you know, it was, it was if you wanted to be close to Hitler, it was it was good to be also a patient of Morel. Also, Goebbels received injections from Morel. Speer did. Uh, Leni Riefenstahl received these uh, these medications, uh, these opium medications. Morel became a very busy man. There's there's one passage in in his notes where he complains that he has no more free time and that he's running around from one famous patient to the next. And but he, you can all you can also read between the lines that he's extremely proud of yeah. the influence and he thinks he's making history with the syringe basically. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it, really. And I think by way of his importance, people start to get almost used to it, used to his kind of regular injections if you like and because of that they don't really realize there's a great there's a great uh, few sentences you write where the hitler the vegetarian takes mm. uh, takes an injection after after eating this perfect meal at dinner time i think it was around his birthday his his 55th mm. birthday 
after eating this perfect meal with no veg with no with no meat to speak of he then takes an injection made <laughs> up of of the of the organs of slaughtered animals like yeah, it's, it's madness really, it is yeah. pretty mad yeah what what kind of what kind of runs through your head when you're when you're reading this stuff for like the first time well i mean for me as a writer i just i felt i was i felt joy for you know reading those documents and just because mm. i realized this is like the craziest story in the world or at least that's how i felt um, so it's it was very interesting material to to work with and to try to try to figure out how to compose this book was was a lot of fun also even though it was also dark obviously because it's concerned with these dark people sure doing these dark things but um you know the drug angle always you know lets you laugh a bit sometimes or lets <laughs> you you know it's it's for me it was a healthy angle to to write a story about the third reich and i think uh, uh, co- continuing with with the theme of, of of hitler's contradictory kind of behavior there there's that kind of key moment after operation valkyrie where where the assassination attempt on him fails on july the 20th 1944 and from that point he really seems to to go mm. downhill even just the psychological impact of all of his mm. years kind of turning on him in such a way but the, this new doctor enters the picture uh, an mm. ear and nose doctor and he starts to give him kind of cocaine swabs of all, mm. of all things and there is this great there's this great line where hitler says he doesn't want to be a cocaine addict and and his his new doctor says you can't be an addict unless you're on, only those that snort cocaine are addicts mm. and i just thought yeah. that, that was a, <laughs> a hilarious way to kind of write off exactly what was happening like well that report from dr giesing is stored in the institute for contemporary history in munich and when i this was one of the first things i read and i really thought this is uh because it's written it it has a lot of detail like Mm -hmm. he actually describes how hitler takes these cocaine swabs or how the cocaine was brought into the headquarters how did it actually technically work to get this cocaine in there officially and then administer it to Hitler and how Hitler reacted and how then Morel reacted. He was very jealous that this new doctor has this new powerful drug and then Giesing was actually trying to to re- have Morel removed and take <laughs> on his position. So that's yeah. this kind of doctor's war that I described that had t- took place in September and October 1944. Uh, kind of a war between cocaine and and oikodal, the opiate. So that's that's certainly the most crazy period of the whole of the whole uh, Hitler Hitler Hitler's whole Hitler's drug taking. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting the way there was a power struggle. Like in late nineteen forty four, we kind of think as as the Nazi regime as pretty much on on the death throes, and yet there are mm. these. What what I well I like to think of as as the rats fighting over the helm of a sinking ship like it's mm, it's madness yeah. to think that they would fight so enthusiastically to be in a position which surely they know can't last much longer. Yeah, I was also surprised by that, and in the way the doctors' war was a proxy war for the succession of Hitler, um, because they knew that if they can remove Morel, then Hitler will basically fall apart. So they were behind these doctors that were trying to remove morale. They were the people who were trying to take Hitler's position. There was Speer, there was Himmler and Bormann. So they were they were really fighting for becoming the next German Führer. And I had never really studied that 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 aspect before. And actually studying the the, the 
the drug situation in the Third Reich uh, led me to you know study all kinds of aspects of of that of that era. That was quite fascinating, and I think that hope or hope, hopefully that shows in Blitz that if you read Blitz, you're not going to read just a story on drugs in the Third Reich, but you're basically are going to read um, a whole the whole story of the Third Reich. Mm. From this angle, but it it touches so many so many aspects. Yeah, that uh, yeah, that you don't need uh, Richard Evans books anymore. <laughs> I like it. it's very good. I want, I really want to thank you very much for coming on to the show. And it, just to conclude, I think it'd be good to say if people wanted to find you, if they wanted to find your book. I mean, I was very excited because you're the first kind of. Not only international best-selling author that I've had, but the first guy who, well, whose book I found just in in the bookstore and just around mm. the corner from myself. So it's very That's exciting good. to to have you on. And if people, do you have a, a website? Are you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at normanoller dot com, or you can find me on Facebook and uh, also on Twitter. And right. hopefully, the books in the books in a in a local bookshop. That's always the best way to buy them. Yeah, well, I found this one in uh, Greystones in County Wicklow, so I'd imagine if it's there, Good. then that's everyone. Probably be most places. <laughs> Great. So no, it was it was a pleasure to be to be on the show. Thanks very much for coming on, Norman, and I'm sure sure I'll talk to you soon. That'll be great. Thank you. All right. What did we think of that? I, for one, enjoyed myself, and I am happy to say Norman Oler was. Well, really quite generous, quite patient with me as well, and really took all my questions on board and gave me proper answers. Objectively speaking, you might say that he sounds a bit tired, and yes, I think that's fair enough. He's probably doing an awful lot of talking about the book, but he didn't skimp on the details with this conversation here. So I hope you did enjoy it. Make sure to let me know through the usual channels what you thought, and if this is your first time listening to Endiplosy Fails... We do new episodes every single week and sometimes twice a week. So if you're interested in history, if you're a history nerd like myself, make sure and check us out. Go to WDFpodcast.com or simply search for When Diplomacy Fails in your favorite podcatcher. That's the episode, guys. I'm 26 years old now and things are very, very old. But hey, we're still doing this. We're still making history thrive. This has been Zach. Collaboration episode. Norman Oler. Go and tell your friends. But until then, I'll be seeing you all hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 